C.S. Lewis once said, good and evil increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions we make every day are of infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may go on to victories you never dreamed of. This is a quote that came to mind as I read today's book. Another quote also came to mind. Just as the good things we do compound over time, so too do the not-so-good things. And John Dryden once wrote that, first we make our habits, and then our habits make us. This is the case for the daily stresses we tolerate every single day as well. They shape how we think, they shape how we feel, and ultimately, they shape our lives. Our guest calls these daily stresses micro-stresses. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of the brand new book, The Microstress Effect. Here over my shoulder, I have a copy up for grabs for you, the Innovation Show audience. Just sign up to our Substack newsletter and you will be in the hat to win a copy of The Microstress Effect. She's become a great friend of the show. She has been a friend throughout the series we had on Clayton Christensen, and I'm sure we will be friends going into the future as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of The Microstress Effect, Karen Dillon. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. As you know, I'm very happy to talk with you anytime, but it's great to be here today. Karen, it is a pleasure to have you back again. And I found it fascinating reading this book, having read your previous books, and particularly the book you co-authored with Clayton Christensen, How Will You Measure Your Life? Because that book for me was the what and this book the microstress effect appears to be the how maybe we'll start with that and explain it to our audience I think you read it exactly right. And that's the reason why I wanted to work on this. I, I am very kind of guarded with how much energy and time I put into projects uh, in my life, because as you know, how will you measure your life really sort of asks us to be very conscious about our own personal resource allocation. How do we spend our time making sure it's towards things that are actually our goals in life? Um, and Rob Cross, my co-author on this book, was a super fan of How Will You Measure Your Life? And that's why he approached me about the beginnings of his research. And I have to say, I, it took him a couple tries to uh, convince me because I was being so guarded about my time. But once I sort of understood what his research was showing and he invited me to join in with him in the research, I felt it was really important. It was a kind of second volume to How Will You Measure Your Life? You got it exactly right. How, how Will You Measure Your Life? is sort of asking us to think about how we spend our time so that we will achieve the life that we want in the long run. This book is telling us how to make sure you don't go off track. It's the how in the everyday moments may sound good to aspire to something, but who has time? Hopefully this book will help you figure out how to do that. You mentioned the research there, Karen, and I found not only reading it and absorbing all the diagrams, for example, throughout the book, but the stories and the research you mentioned, these case studies throughout the book, I found myself nodding and I found myself cast back into those moments of some of those microstresses that happened to me and my fight or flight response was kicking in as I remember them so vividly. Maybe we'll tell our audience a little bit about that, about the amount of research because you and your co-author Rob Cross interviewed thousands of people. 
Yes, this is the extension of um, a decade's worth of research that my co-author Rob Cross has been doing. He is an expert on collaboration and in particular in sort of networking the relationships that, that are important or essential in collaboration. And this came out of the, his, his years of work, which had been focused initially on trying to understand what high performers do better than the rest of us, how they leverage their, their relationships and their network to be more effective, to be, you know, more high achievers. Um, and, and early Early on in this now subset of interviews, this was a sort of 300, a set of 300 people who had been identified by their organizations as not only successful by all measures the outside world would look at, you know, job title, um, promotions, aspirations, but people that they identified as kind of doing it all well and, and have thriving generally at work. Um, so we interviewed 300 people, an equal number of men and women um, in depth uh, in organizations around the world. I think we had interviews on every uh, continent except uh, Antarctica. Uh, and to identify the initial goal was, you know, what, what can we learn from you? What do you do better than the rest of us? Because clearly you're thriving in a way that some of us are not. And what was fascinating was, I think, in the very first interview, there was a, a life sciences executive uh, living in London who was talking about how uh, her life had become revolved around fitness. And she was in such great shape that she and her husband were taking vacations that were involving running a marathon first. And she was sort of feeling great about herself. And she was you know, shining and exuding confidence. And she talked about how that had been a journey for her because she'd only started getting in shape when her doctor gave her a stern warning that she was really, you know, she was in, in, in jeopardizing, you know, her long-term health was really not in a good place. And just on a whim, we asked, well, what got you so off track in the first place? Because you're such a high performer, we would expect you to be running marathons sounds like a natural thing for someone like you. How, how did you let yourself get out of shape for such a long time? And then the interview, which had been going kind of 100 miles a minute, you know, talk rainbows and lollipops, all of how her life was fabulous and perfect. She paused for a long time. And then she sort of said something like, just life, I guess. And then we started to, to dive into what does that mean, just life? And we began to realize from this interview and the ones that, went, that we went on with that even people who kind of have it look like they have it all perfectly, doing better than the rest of us, all the conventional trappings of success and exude this kind of, I've got it down, I know what I'm doing. As soon as we got sort of 30, 40, 50 minutes into the interview, the veneer would kind of come off. And we realized that really the majority of the people we were talking to, these people who were identified by their own organizations as high performers, not self-identification, were kind of barely hanging on. They were they, Their life was so overwhelmed by just life, you know, the small things that, that happened in the day um, that was threatening to derail their careers and their lives in a really surprising way. Some people even got emotional and teary as we kind of started to ask a little bit more about what was going on in their life. Uh, and we realized that there was something happening that we didn't have language for, uh, that they didn't have language for. It was never one big thing, never one major stress that, that had thrown them off track or was threatening to throw them off track. It was the just life stuff, the many little things. So that's where we came up with the, the term that we began using, micro stress. And we mean something very specific by this. And this is what hopefully a lot of people will relate to. So as opposed to macro stress, death in the family, a serious health issue, job loss, serious concern about the health or mental health of a loved one. Uh, micro stresses are small moments of stress that happen in everyday interactions with people that we're close to personally and professionally that are so brief and so baked into our everyday lives, the way we work and live, that we literally barely notice them, like we barely remember them and we just we move through them. But cumulatively, they take an enormous toll on us. So micro stress 
is not something we know how to talk about. But now that we sort of have language for it, I think people will understand that we are all under a lot of micro stress on a day to day basis. We had on the show brilliant author before a guy called Robert Sapolsky, he's a Stanford professor, but an amazing, amazing author, we have a man to talk about his book, behave, but he has another book called why zebras don't get ulcers, <laughs> a great <laughs> title. And what it's about is that when a zebra is chased by a life, a lion, and its life is on the line, it will go into fight or flight response. But 20 minutes later, after it knows it's safe, it will start chomping on grass <laughs> again and start chilling out. And I, I thought about that as I read this book, because one of the problems for us is that when we're constantly under the barrage of these micro stresses, we are constantly in fight or flight. And it's like it's chipping away at us over time. And this is why I started with the CS Lewis quote, is that 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 compound interest of those stresses, no wonder we're seeing an uptick in neurodegenerative diseases. And so many people having all kinds of diseases because of stress, because we're constantly keeping them alive. The other thing I just wanted to mention is that when we go home to our loved ones or our partners or our housemates or our flatmates, and we unload on them, yes, it's important to have a support network. But sometimes we actually unload on them and keep it alive and burden them. And this amplifies the stress effect and thus the micro stresses are kept alive. Absolutely. And even what a lot of us tend to do is go home and sort of need empathy from our loved one on, you know, the terrible thing that happened to me today. But think about how this will affect your relationship over time. Not that you shouldn't be able to do that. We all should be able to do that. But if you come home from a stressful day, and even just starting to explain why it was stressful in these small ways, micro stress ways, you know, it's, you know, the first, uh, you know, when I had the meeting with so and so, he didn't turn up for 15 minutes, and then he hadn't read my memo. And it, it takes a little while for you to explain the context. And then if what happens with your partner, and then you're outraged and upset and angry and sort of unloading that. And then if what happens, which commonly does, is your partner kind of empathizes with you. You're right. They don't appreciate you. Um, you know, some empathy is good, but too much of it can actually make a spiral. Yeah, we are a victim. So it sort of extends the impact of that original micro stress. So you've taken time to talk about it eating into your relationship. Your spouse has, has been either do one of two things, either tunes out because they're so tired of hearing those micro stories or they give you empathy in a way that makes you spiral longer. And just the ripple effects of what may have been, you know, a 15 minute insulted meeting in some way, you know, can extend into your evening, you're not fully present, you wake up the next day feeling grumpy, it just it just takes a toll on us. And it sounds so dumb to come home and say, um, he didn't read my memo before the, be the meeting, right? Because how big a deal is that? The point is, it's one of, you know, a dozen micro stresses that happened during your day. And we bring them home with us. And a metaphor that I really like myself for what happens to us is the micro stresses are like a teacup that they're sort of filling, you're pouring into the teacup, you're pouring into the teacup. And by the time you're getting home, you might be just able to carry that teacup to the table without spilling, but one or two extra drops and the thing spills over. That's what tends to happen to us because the micro stresses layer up in the day. So in some ways, our worst self is the one that comes home or is present with the family around the dinner table or your partner around the dinner table. So even though whatever micro stresses happen at home, maybe individually very small, they're just those extra drops in your teacup. And then you're not your best self by the end of the day. And it spills over into the, the relationship at home as well. So funny you say that I, I use that technique with my children. So particularly when they were younger, I was trying to show them how over the day of the course of the day, particularly for 
my wife who's with them most of the day when they're not in school and where they don't put their laundry away or they don't put their stuff in the dishwasher or they don't do what they're told after multiple times and I show them a glass of water and I fill it up gradually and I say then all of a sudden the glass is full and it appears that mommy or daddy is upset about something that's seemingly small but it's the gradual accumulation of all those things throughout the day that you just flip and then I pour the water into the sink and I go it's the same daddy does it to mommy all the time as well this is how people fill up and they flip their lid and I just thought that was actually right on point for what you are talking about there because it's the same for relationships as well that's perfect. That's perfect because you can see literally with doing that, there's like the, the, the tension on the top surface tension is holding, 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 and then one drop and then it goes. That's, ex- that's a really great metaphor. It's a good one to use with kids too. Let's link it now to other examples other than me and my, my daily chores and my daily micro stresses. You may, I mentioned that you have so many case studies and obviously you've anonymized these people throughout the book. But I have one quote here that I'll bring to life and I'd love you to unpack. Firstly, You say microstresses can set off a chain reaction of primary, secondary, and sometimes tertiary consequences that can last for hours or even days, though you may not connect the effects to the original microstress, hence why I mentioned zebras don't get ulcers. And then I want to link it to this quote. This was one of the people that you interviewed. You said, he had become so used to the daily microstresses in his life that he just plowed through them one by one, without recognizing that the cumulative effects of those brief moments lingered beyond the original trigger. Unfortunately, this is the all too common case. Many of us know somebody like this. This is the story of Brian. Sure. So Brian is, I think, the opening story, the first story we tell in the book. And he was a really successful executive who was really physically healthy. And he was so into his health, in addition to his high pressure job, that he actually could tell you all of his, I don't know what the right term is, but all, you know, all of his measurements, like what his heart rate should be when he was doing Peloton. And he was just a real sort of fitness night. And he woke up in the middle of the night thinking he was having a heart attack. And it was shocking to him because he knew that he was so physically healthy. Um, so he actually got himself to the emergency room as quickly as possible and they could find nothing. And, and it sort of, as he said, it wigged me out for a little bit because he realized he probably had a panic attack. But physically, he literally thought he might be dying in the middle of the night. And he didn't understand why, because he see, like he felt like he had all the elements of his life in, in the right place. He had a great job. He was very successful. And again, he was very physically fit. But what we realized as we were talking to him and we talked through with him was his life was brimming with micro stress and he just didn't recognize it. So as he was telling us about what we later realized was a panic attack, we asked him about a day in the life. And even as we were talking to him, his email was pinging off and going and and just talking about the waking up first thing in the morning and already seeing a problem in his inbox that he had to deal with and the misconnection with colleagues on some project or other or worrying that he hadn't um, advocated for the people who reported to him enough for their raises, just all those little things all day in the life, right, of anybody working in a busy job. And then we layered personal micro stresses on top of it. One of the ones I remember off the top of my head is that he kept getting calls from the um, assisted living facility that um, his mom was living in, that his mom kept forgetting to take her medicine or wanting to experiment with the medicine. And again, she was under care, she would be okay. But now he's starting to worry, do I have to make different arrangements for my mom? Do I need to worry 
worry about her falling in the middle of the night because she hasn't taken her medicine, just you know, the patterns of it. His life was filled with, I think we counted 14 that just in the conversation we were talking with him that we identified. And it just created a really different view of the world of Brian, which was, yes, this was a high performer who was very good at juggling a lot of things, but he was not immune to the reality of microstress. And those things just, again, layered up and take it took a toll to the point that he was surprised by it, but he actually had the panic attack. And his life is, I think, a representation of what can happen to all of us. There's an author that we obviously both love, Lisa Feldman Barrett, hopefully going to come onto the show in the near future. I'm holding her books up here for those watching us on YouTube. And you quote her in the book where she wrote, when your body budget is continually burdened, momentary stressors pile up, even the kind that you'd normally bounce back from quickly. It's like children jumping on a bed. The bed might withstand 10 kids bouncing at the same time, but the 11th one snaps the bed frame, kind of like the glass filling up and overflowing. And I thought that was really important to call out because many of us will put up with this for a very, very long time until there's some snap. And Oftentimes, it's because we've got ourselves into this situation where we've climbed the ladder and realized it's against the wrong wall. So we might not even enjoy what we do anymore. It's constant stress for us. Then when we're at home, we're thinking about work. And when we're at work, we're thinking about, oh, I should be at home. I've been there. I've been in this kind of moment. And that's what type. it's what drives me with the show to give people information, hopefully in a consumable, accessible way that they can make better decisions for their life. And it's what I love about your work and your previous book with Clay, How Will You Measure Your Life? Because they are life-changing, these books, and it can really help people get out of this hedonic treadmill, as you talk about in the book, or break the fur-lined mousetrap, or break the golden handcuffs. You mentioned, for example, one gentleman in the book who turned away a half a million bonus over three years to stay with his family. And when you think about that half a million, I often think about this is that you'll end up probably spending that on healthcare at the end of your life. And it's worth measuring those things early in life and kind of play them forward and see how they'd unpack throughout life. It's a really important message. And one of the things we saw from the, again, the high performers that mostly were, were sort of in trouble with micro stresses is that for many of them, it wasn't just that they wanted um, better status and bigger car. It's that they saw their role as provider or so something that, that was about their identity, you know, within their family. But there was kind of in series of steps without them thinking about it, they kind of got themselves to the point where they were in that sort of in trouble zone where it was a better school system or private school or a better house. And they kind of kept trying to do things to be a better provider. It wasn't just for the status, but there was almost always one step too far that that was the one that sort of began to break them, moved a little too far away from their, their commute, became longer because they were trying to get in a particular school system or a fancier house. Or one thing that they did, it was, again, these small incremental steps that ended up being the one that kind of got them in trouble. Um, and I think the people who well, I know the people in our work who did it best, like the guy who turned down the, the $500,000 job, they were all successful, but they just had a really clear sense of their own identity and what mattered to them. And they made decisions that mapped to that, as opposed to letting them get sort of sucked up into what someone else's version of success would be. When, a great story from the book that I, I love as well was this woman who was a lifelong competitive runner. She'd gone to Stanford and she had been on the track team, a star on the track team. 
And she continued after college to um, run competitively. And she would measure her success as a runner with, did I have a personal best this year? Which is a dangerous thing once you get past a certain age, because you may not be getting personal best. But that was how she had determined if she had been successful in this activity. She loved running. And then she started to realize, I think it was by the time she was in her early 40s, that you know that was someone else's version of success. That's old, old me's version of success that maybe I love to run, but I don't have to do it in a way that's about this solo focused on being impressive to other people. So she shifted running from doing that personal best thing to choosing to run with her teenage daughter, one of her teenage daughter's friends and another mom. And even though they were running way slower than she was ever used to, she became kind of an informal coach and motivator. And she loved it. The time being with them, same amount of time she was been running, maybe a little less even, but it was a totally different part of her. And it was very fulfilling to her in a way that her own personal best running had stopped becoming. And so for some of the people who did this really well in our research, it was shifting something that mattered to them in a way that maybe had more purpose to it or more connection with other human beings. So yes, not letting someone else's definition of success drive the decisions you make to the point where uh, your, your health is in jeopardy, mental and physical health is in jeopardy. I was reading about resilience before studying about resilience and how people cope with workplace stress. And one of the findings was that people who often disliked their job or didn't find any purpose in their job would have these amazing hobbies, often risky hobbies, or like that lady you mentioned, would be triathletes or something like that. And I, what I found interesting about both this book and indeed, how will you measure your life is that it's one of the things that comes to life, you address purpose, and even questioning, why am I doing this thing? Am I looking for purpose? Am I looking for meaning? elsewhere other than in my work, because I don't find it there. And I just wanted to share that with the audience as a as a question to ask yourself if you fall into that category. But the next element, I, I thought I'd share a diagram where you show, you show in the book 14 sources of stress. And I thought this was really interesting. And we won't have time, obviously, to go through them all. Your publisher would kill me in the first place. But also, we just wouldn't have time. And maybe you'll pick a few here that you want to unpack, maybe ones that you see as common micro stresses. But there was a quote as well I wanted to share because I found this fascinating. It was a quote about a Gallup survey. And in its annual state of workplace survey, Gallup concluded that only 33% of those surveyed were thriving in their well being with 44% of employees reporting experiencing a lot of stress in a typical word workday. This is a record high. But little recognized or even adequately studied is the toll of this new form of stress. The toll is so subtle that we barely register it. This is the accumulative effect of micro stress that can affect and derail even the highest performers, both professionally and personally. And this raises where does all this micro stress come from? Uh, so this is great that these are the 14 uh, sources, the most common sources that we identified in our research, and we put them into three different buckets. And I'll just explain the buckets. And then I'll pick one or two examples to illustrate it. So the first one, I think everybody in the world can relate to are micro stresses that drain our capacity to get things done. It's just the things that that turn up on sticky notes on your computer and on your calendar and your to do the reason you feel behind right when you open your, your inbox in the morning. Um, there are all kinds of things that just get in the way of us being effective at our at our work or in our life. 
Um, and then the second category is ones that are a little more subtle. You don't realize that as much as you might see the sticky notes and the calendar things on the capacity draining ones are micro stresses that, that deplete our emotional reserves. And I'll explain what that means in a second, because I think that's a very common one. And the final bucket there on the right is um, ones that challenge our identity, uh, that things that sort of really subtly, but actually start making you feel not good about who you are in some way or not comfortable with what you're being asked to do or how you're responding. They, they sort of eat into that. Um, and in sort of order of how we recognize them, it's left to right there. So capacity draining microstresses, a really common one. And again, oh, I just want to stress with all microstresses, by the way, we're not talking about these being created or coming at you from really jerks or toxic people or terrible relationships. The point of microstress and the reason it's so damaging is because they come from people that we're close to personally or professionally. We have to work closely with them. They're close in our personal lives. And they're not really intentionally caused. It's just the the your quote you read before this was perfect. The kind of 24-7 nature of our overloaded lives means that we are just ripe for micro stress getting making things worse. So a common source that many people will um, understand from the capacity draining micro stresses is misaligned roles and priorities. You're working on something, a colleague's working on something, you're supposed to be working together, and somehow you realize you're just slightly off from each other. Wait, am we supposed to be maximizing for this? Do I need to have have it done by then. It's just a small miscommunication or lack of communication that ends up leading to something that, that where you end up feeling like you're working differently and you have to correct it and put it together. We have a, an example in the book that I think everyone in the world can relate to, which is late in the day email from your manager, boss, somebody in a position of authority asking for something that yeah, you don't 100% know what they're referring to. So this is a person in the book called Rita who gets an email at like 5.30 at the end of the day asking for something to help prepare the new manager for, I think it's a board presentation. And again, it sounds silly going home and saying, I had an email at 5.30 that stressed me out. But that's the reality for so many of us because wait, what does she want? Uh, when do I need it? I'll now tap into other colleagues to ask them, do you have that data on? And then two colleagues did something different. It ends up keeping this person at her desk for an extra 45 minutes or something like that. And by the time she has started to drive home, she's not only not finished what she wanted to do for the day. So her own to do work before that is, is been put to the wayside, but she's driving home late. Dinner's going to be something different than what she wanted. She gets home late enough that she misses the opportunity to sit down with her teenage son, who she's been worried about because he's been a little bit quiet and she just wants to talk to him casually over dinner. He's in his room by the time she comes home. So an email, a single email, which ripple effects from, you know, affecting her literal ability to get her own work done then to the kind of emotional reserves thing is like, am I going to be seen as um, together and, and, and I can do person by my new manager, I have to get this done to identity challenging micro stresses. I'm not, um, I'm not um, the mother I want to be if I'm not somehow being connected, attuned to and connected to my son. Sounds silly. A single email started that, but that's the normal ripple effects something like that can have. So we have all of those things in efficient communication practices, all those in most of our working days. The emotion depleting ones are ones that I think a lot of people can relate to once I start explaining what you're talking about. One of my most common examples from my own life is sometimes we're hectically getting out the door in the morning and we might exchange curt words with our kid or with our spouse or our partner. It's, you know, nothing's wrong with the relationship. We'll still be mom. We'll still be the husband or wife when we get home. But that kind of ruins your day. Like, you, you know, you're not, you, you didn't like how that happened. It's just the interaction was not great. You maybe were inconsequentially getting at them for not getting their homework done or time or not getting their, their book bag together in time or who's supposed to do that chore. 
that's eaten, eaten into your emotional reserve. So you're starting off your day kind of feeling a little bit depleted for, you know, the, the person you want to be in the day. Again, nothing terrible, just a small way of kind of eating into feeling good about yourself that day. Um, and one on here I want to actually mention, I think is pretty um, useful for people too, lack of trust. And we don't mean mistrust, but what we mean by that is the way so many of us work now is we're kind of constantly being put on teams and working collaboratively. And it's pretty rare that we have the kind of work relationships where we've worked with people for 20 years. We know them so well. We know what they can be relied upon to do. They know what we can be relied upon to do. We have almost a language shorthand because we know how to work together. It's because of the way we work, newness of working with different people, people coming and going on teams and in the organization, getting to know new people, just talking about the new boss there, that we just don't have that foundation of trust yet so that we both end up maybe working a little more than we need to or not being able to kind of collaborate in a really constructive way. That's just a filled, that's a trigger for micro stress is having that not yet built the trust that we would love to have with the people we, we work closely with. We've all, all been there with that type of boss. I was thinking about it when I was reading it. And I remember the worst thing about that is that then you become part of the problem in that you receive this cryptic email, and then you might ring some colleagues to ask them and kind of go, hey, do you know what this means? And then you might involve a few people, bring them into an email, and you become an, uh, an echo or distributor of the micro stress to other people. Or one of the worst things, and I don't know if this has happened to you or our audience, is you're doing your best to try and figure out what to do. You manage to get some type of response back, you respond and nothing, nada, zilch, no response from the person who asked you for that information or that presentation or that email response. They don't even respond to you after all that micro stress that they've caused. And I had a saying for this, I used to think of it like, imagine you're playing bowling, and you throw the ball down the alley, somebody drops a curtain, and you hear a few pin, pins drop, but you don't know how many. So you don't know how you've done. It's like getting zero feedback. It's absolute torture. And it creates a resentment in the organization as well as a lack of trust. It, it boomerangs. It all boomerangs around. I, I, you just triggered a memory for me, which is not a happy memory that I once killed myself on a report. I won't say which organization I was at at the time to get it done for my new boss, basically. And it was really important. I, I put my energy into it. I, I asked other people to help me collaborate. And I was really proud of the report that I did. It had taken so, quite some time to do it. And then when I gave it to my boss, after a little while, he's like, all right, thanks for that. That was it. No discussion about it. No great insights. No, you know, it was like, it just, again, probably misaligned roles and priorities. He thought it was a, you know, might be interesting to see. I thought it was critical and pivotal. We just hadn't talked about the difference. And, and so he didn't, it was not ill-intentioned. He wasn't a jerk. He just probably Probably was on a different in a different place than I was, but that's a, a micro stress that I'm sure I rippled out, and all the people I asked to help me with it and called in favors to get it done. That's a com that's a common thing. That's very common, sadly. Sadly, and and as you say, it can trickle into your evenings. I wanted to spend time with my kid. I wanted to go to my kid's practice. I wanted to watch Netflix with my partner on the couch. I wanted to chill. Whatever it might be, gets affected because of that lack of empathy from the boss or from the position of privilege, not knowing what it's like to receive a directive like that. And it being a throwaway email from their perspective, but being meaningful to you and all the collateral damage that it causes. 
But there was a quote I wanted to share, an amazing insight, and I thought it was of vital importance to share this. You interviewed a gentleman called Joel Salinas, a behavioral neurologist and researcher at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine and chief medical officer at Isaac Health. And you quote what he said, being pulled in different directions keeps you in a reactive mode, where you're less able to shape your own work efforts towards things that are you personally care about. As a result, you are always busy, but are unable to do the things that matter for your own long term career success and sense of purpose. While micro stresses are damaging our bodies, our brains are not registering them fully as a threat. And therefore, our brains are not triggering the same kind of protective higher order mechanisms that might occur in the face of obvious stress. I thought that was so insightful. The brain fails, you go on to say, to recognize micro stress partly because of how it processes information. The working memory part of the brain occupies the frontal lobe. Our working memory is where we keep mental notes, a kind of mental scratch pad. And here's the key line. But under continual stress, that scratch pad in the frontal lobe tends to shrink. We have a harder time keeping track of things that require our response or our attention. And I thought of that after the pandemic, many, many people reported brain fog, being confused, having less attention spans, not being able to focus, not being able to read books, whatever it might be. And it was an aspect of this, this mental scratch pad and the effect that Selena's talked about. I thought that was a really important insight to share with our audience. It's a really powerful insight. And um, he was really actually really interesting to talk to. He's he gave us a great metaphor of thinking about the impact of micro stress is uh, if you have a mountain and you see a TNT explosion, that major stress, um, you know what happened, you know, the, it's blown off this big hole in it, you can see it and everyone understands that this event happened. But micro stress is like the wind eroding a mountain, you don't see it day by day, the effect, but over time, that mountain will become a nub. Um, it still is, it still is ruined and destroyed, but you just didn't see what happened to get you there. Um, that's what's happening to some extent in our mind with micro stress. It's, 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 it's affecting us physically, but our mind, because of being under constant stress, that frontal lobe actually does shrink. A great way to think about this is who hasn't, um, gone into another room and forgotten what did I go in here for? It's because there's so much in our mind that we just, those, those short term memories just don't stick in the same way. And the pandemic for many of us put us in a state of kind of continual low grade stress. We were just stressed. So our frontal lobes were smaller during the pandemic. Add to it all the micro stresses. We think back to our guy having the panic attack, all the routine micro stresses, you know, not the, the major stress of the pandemic, but all the routine micro stresses that are going on in our life at the same time. And you have a recipe for being exhausted all the time but not actually remembering why you just sort of come to the end of the day and it, that was a day, but what happened? You know, even someone, I've actually had people say to me on, on Monday, how was your weekend? And I, I know it was good. It was good, but I can't recall really quickly. Wait, what did I do? And it's just because we're living in this kind of ocean or swimming this ocean of micro stress all the time that makes it harder for us to, um, to, un to remember these things. But the high performers in our research were constantly thinking about which balls they could drop rather than how do I perform well? It, it, we just have so much that I have to figure out what can I not do and get away with versus what do I want to do well and shape my interactions and perform well? We just don't have that. We're not in the place to do that because we're so overwhelmed with micro stress. 
There's a quote, Karen, that came to mind, and it really, really helps me when I think about things like, am I, is my balance, work-life balance right? And I'm very lucky that I work for myself now, and I arrange my day, for example, around some non-negotiables. Like, I, I drop my son to school every morning, I go to the gym, I don't even see going to the gym as anything special, it's just part of my day. And the way I see it is I'm paying it forward to my 80, 90, 100-year-old self. I'm doing exercises today, so I'm capable of doing them in the future. I'm building up muscles for the future. But there's a quote by Dalai Lama that helps me get to that place in my mindset and how I think, coupled with a story that I'm going to share with you. So the Dalai Lama quote goes as follows. He said, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, confuses him it's a paradox for him because later in life he then sacrifices his money to recuperate his health so we're on this kind of up and down pathway up the mountain all the way to work so hard in order to retire in order to relax and then by the time we get there we sometimes get ill or we have to spend all our money that we've accumulated on getting better but the other one was this story that I hope you haven't heard, and I hope our audience hasn't heard. The story of the fisherman and the businessman. So the story goes something like this. This is my version. There was a businessman on holidays uh, in an island. He sees every day as he's sitting having breakfast a fisherman. And one day he approaches the fisherman and kind of goes, you know, I've been watching you for the past few days, and I think I can help you make a lot of money here. And the fisherman goes, okay, well, when I make a lot of money, what will I do? And he goes, well, when you make a lot of money, you can hire more people. And you can buy bigger boats. And then the fisherman goes, and then what will I do? And the businessman, getting a bit frustrated now, says, actually, you can buy even bigger boats and trawlers, and you can internationalize your business. And the fisherman says, and then what will I do? And the businessman goes, seething red at this stage he says sell your business and retire and the fisherman once again says and then what will i do and the fisherman goes perhaps sit here and fish and i i thought that story for me was so so helpful because sometimes we spend all our effort and all our energy on something that we don't even care about or sometimes we give all that effort and energy to an organization that doesn't really care about us because just because nobody's at fault here you get knocked over by a bus the first thought of the organization is uh-oh what do i do to replace him that's a great story because it sort of highlights some of the points um, that actually we, we learned from the people in our research who actually seem to manage this micro stress better, uh, which is basically they, they, they put energy into having what we call the multidimensional life. They didn't completely allow their, their life to be defined by work and home responsibilities, which for many of us is consuming. Um, but they found a way to make sure they had other things in their life and other activities and other 
passions that they were able to devote some time to that we think made a really big difference in how they responded to microstress. So the, the sort of win of is, is that not, not that they don't have microstress, we all have microstress, but they were able to manage it better. It didn't derail them in the same way. It didn't throw them off in the same way because they found time. They made time, even in small moments, this was the key, even in small moments, uh, to be connected with other people in activities and passions and interests that they had outside of solely defining themselves in a very one-dimensional way as at work or as a family person. Both of those are super important, but adding, again, the multiple multiple dimensions we call being a multidimensional life uh, was really important. And they did better than most of the people in our in our research at managing microstress. So it's a really good example of understanding the value of your time and energy going towards something that's going to make you happy rather than just something that's supposed to be achieving someone else's someone else's versions of success, someone else's de definition of what you're supposed to be wanting. I think that was one good thing from the pandemic was that some people had a moment to wake up, they had a shot across their bow and they moved back to where they're from. They work from their original villages and stuff like that. But also in a world now of where we're actually seeing the impact of artificial intelligence, chat GPT, open AI, etc. People will have to get more comfortable with work that provides some type of purpose or at least use AI in order to be able to do more of those things that they really like. But I wanted to jump to something else, Karen, because you call out five common micro stresses that deplete our emotional reserves, but are not always obvious, despite often reverberating in our lives for hours or days. And these are hidden, as you recognize. But I wanted to focus particularly on some that are so prevalent for the corporate innovator, the corporate explorer, the person trying to change an organization working in transformation in an organization. The, the five are managing and advocating for others, confrontational conversations, which happens a lot for the innovator who's calling it out, sometimes calling the emperors naked, lack of trust, which is often there a lot, secondhand stress, and this one, I'd love you to share mostly political maneuvering, having to be able to speak politic, having to know who the right person is to talk to in the organization in order to understand where the levers are in order to get some success, understanding the locus of power throughout the organization. These are things that are torturous for an innovator, but are so, so important, but absolutely drain your energy and cause micro stress. The political maneuvering we're talking about is not like a really nasty office politics where someone's trying to stab you in the back, but it's just that you sort of sense that things are going on that you don't fully understand. People are reacting in ways that don't seem they're not obvious or consistent to you. There are conversations happening that you're not part of. It's kind of the subtle form of political maneuvering. Someone actually gave us a great example of being on what turned out to be an email battle between two higher ups that they were kind of doing publicly, but very passive aggressively with each other that affected a lot of people below it. But none of their, I think they were, they were supposed to be making a decision about 
what vacation policy or something, but somehow it was happening in front of the underlings in, in an email, passive aggressive email chain. And everybody on the chain felt like uncomfortable. I don't want to know, like solve that on your own. I don't want to be part of that. So for anyone who's trying to be a change agent in some way, that's really challenging because suddenly you don't fully understand what's happening. You're having to put energy into trying to understand, trying to persuade, trying to make sure you don't accidentally touch a button here that sets off something there. It, that That's micro stress in spades. Um, but it is micro stress because it's in the interaction that you suddenly realize there's something going on. Like we've just had a conversation that there was something unspoken there that I didn't fully understand. Or why is that person not responding to me in the way that I need them to respond to or not giving me resources or challenging me publicly? It's confrontational conversations too in a meeting that sort of puts me on my back foot. Um, that happens. And it's largely a fact of not understanding, necessarily understanding what's happening for the other person, not understanding the context of it and not understanding how, what you're trying to do is going to affect them in a way under having that perspective. Um, so a large, one of the big pieces of advice we have is not just, you know, di directly confronting them, but trying to get a better understanding to start with. And sometimes you can get that from a peer of that person or someone else who understands the organizational politics in a way that you might not like someone might be able to say to you in a way that's really helpful. Do you know, Aiden is under tremendous budget stress. He's been told that if he hasn't cut a million from his budget in the next two years, um, he's going to have to, you know, cut his team or something. And, and you didn't know that. And so what you're asking him to do is a really big consuming, you know, resource allocation thing. It, helpful to know, maybe even having a conversation directly. I know you're under some budget stress. Can we figure out a way that we can do this that will have minimal impact? Just kind of acknowledging where they're coming from. It's not necessarily that they're evil or bad. They just have something else going on that you don't understand. So, so trying to both have empathy for that without giving up on, you know, what you're trying, what you're trying to accomplish can make the interactions more constructive. That's the point is the interactions are where the micro stress comes from. So understanding where they're coming from, having being clear yourself so that again, we often miscommunicate without realizing it. We think everybody's left the meeting understanding the same thing. And we get back to our desks and suddenly we're all kind of have a different perception of what we disagreed to, what's happening. You can even be better for your own work being understood and not getting into political mire uh, by at the end of every meeting, taking five minutes to say, all right, are we all on the same page? We're going to do this in the next two weeks. I'm going to come back to you with this before we make a decision. I need you to investigate this. Do you agree to that? Just that kind of thing. So there's clarity. You know, nature hates a vacuum, right? If there's, if it's, unclear people's anxieties and worst case scenarios fill in and then they sort of spiral in a different way. And one person who's kind of stressed out from an office politics perspective about what you're trying to do can spray it on other people, another micro stress, the secondhand stress. So they, they're anxious about it. They didn't, you know, they didn't take into account how much work we already have. And you think that they're asking us to do a whole other extra job. They used to hire people to do this. And then suddenly you've got, you know, five people who are as anxious as that first person, when in reality, you might be able to say, we're just going to be clear. If we decide to go forward with this, we're going to take this responsibility away or make this lower priority, or we're going to hire somebody. You can just get ahead of some of what, you know, again, in a vacuum spirals. Uh, it's again, not the, the kind of micro stress we're talking about here is not because someone's really a jerk. It's because we're all so busy and overwhelmed and we we're, we pass by each other so quickly that we don't have the right conversations to at least understand one another more clearly, which can be really a mitigating thing on the sort of stress of those office politics. And for a change agent, that's really essential because you need people to be on your side. And if you're starting off uh, with people automatically feeling like they have to fight you because you, you represent something that makes them uncomfortable, 
your job needs to be to make them more comfortable and understand you well enough to not become a, a sort of enemy of your project or your agenda. I wanted to mention one, Karen, that you point out in the book, which is that I one of the roles I play in my gig economy as a gig economy worker as a consultant is I coach some CEOs and senior leaders. And one of the things if those senior leaders are managers managing other people or they're under their guidance in some way, there's often a feeling of guilt from the leader, the person I'm coaching, that they don't have the capacity to mind those people to look out for them. And therefore, most of their interactions are transactional, they're mechanical, they're checking on, on progress on a project, they're setting agendas, they're asking about progress in a certain element of the business. And as a result, they feel that they're missing that humanic human interactions as a result, and they can feel quite stressed about that, that causes micro stress itself. And the leader, I'm talking to you here, often, you feel a guilt about this. And you got to look after yourself, you got to put on that oxygen mask yourself. And Karen covers that in the book. And I just wanted to point that out really out of a position of empathy to you if you're feeling that yourself as a manager of other people. But Karen, I wanted to come out of the office politics part to another part. Because this is something that I had experienced myself as a corporate innovator, particularly if you have a team, is that you have this sense of responsibility to provide air cover for your team. So you may be getting stress about how's the project coming on? Is when's this thing going to be profitable? If you're a corporate innovator, often the antibodies of the organization are out to kill your project or your idea or your innovation. And you have to provide this air cover. Again, this creates micro stress for you as the change maker in the organization. And one of the examples you give in the book is Raul. It, it's a great example, actually. And I related to that, too, because as I, I've been a manager for many years in my career. And, and it, people might think that managing people, you know, herding cats, it's always negative. But sometimes that comes from be caring so much about the people that you work with and wanting to protect them and wanting to make sure they shine. And you know how hard they work. And so Raul was an example of that, where he, he thought his department had done, had done well uh, for years and, and had been you know well-regarded in the company. And he thought they were very productive. And then a new manager came in. We've all seen this a little bit as, you know, I'm a change agent and starts asking questions, almost seemingly designed to make you uncomfortable, make you nervous. And I think in Raul's case, they were, he was sort of casually tossing off, like, you know, so-and-so is very old school and a, you know, like sort of implying that not up to our current standards. And so what Raul did was, which unfortunately was the wrong thing was he got a, got overprotective and started worrying about um, every single interaction and micromanaging his team. Like, let me see it before you um, go back to the boss or you need to do this better. You know, he, he sort of, he made things worse for, he, he, he was micro stressed by that new boss. And then he sprayed it on to everybody that works for him and making the whole situation work worse. And I think we tend to do that. We kind of overreact to our protective instincts kick in. What would be better and what he eventually got better at doing was finding ways to kind of help coach them briefly to, to start problem solving themselves, understanding the context of the new manager. This is they want to see solutions that uh, allow us to be more cost effective, work with us on this. And, and, and as the team kind of had been sheltered really for too long, kind of started to understand the context of the new manager, they got better at, at working in that system. And Raul could better advocate for them because they were genuinely starting to step up to, to, to the bar that the new manager was setting. I think we 
so quickly go to that protective thing. And what many managers do, you talked about not having time to coach, they, they justify to themselves, well, it will take me two hours to explain that to him, how to do that. I can do it in 25 minutes. So you say yes to like, you know, 10, 25 minute things that suddenly is added all that time to your week. And the person that you were trying, that should have been coaching, never knows, never gets better, knows that they can ask you to finish up stuff for them. It's not a win in the long run. So the instincts that we have that are really nice ones, protective ones are actually bad for you and bad for your team in the long run. So you have to find small ways, even if you don't spend a ton of time, just say, come back to me with a solution. Here's, here's what we're struggling with. I need you to think about it. Can you test this with one client? You can just do it really quickly in a way and then figure out some check-ins that allow them the opportunity to grow rather than just, you know, keeping them in the, you know, in the shade so that the new boss doesn't see how they actually work. One of the many things I love about the book is that you, you're no, there's no finger pointing to us, to the reader. You're suggesting ways out, but at the same time, and this is really important, you are putting the onus on us, because it is up to us. And I always think about this when I'm, I'm coaching, or when I'm going through a rough time, maybe with somebody where we're misunderstanding each other, or I look at myself in the mirror first, and I have this saying that when you point the finger, there's three pointing back to yourself. Oh, I now, that. I picked that up somewhere else <laughs> out there in the ether. But it, I find it really, really useful. Because when you blame a situation, you look in the mirror and go, what did I do to create that situation? Now, the reason I'm sharing that is you do this with the book, and there's a chapter on where on purpose, and this is called when you don't feel like yourself. And it reminded me of a quote by Emerson, who said to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make yourself something else is the greatest accomplishment. And in that chapter, it really links to your previous work with Clayton Christensen on how will you measure your life. It makes us look in the mirror, makes us look to what our values are, what do we stand for in life, because we need to stand for that all the time. I'd love you to take our audience through this. This aspect is so important if you're ever looking to evolve in life. Sure. So when it, so as you know, from how will, how will you measure your life, we talk about needing to have a purpose as a kind of North Star. And that's not something that you can think of overnight. It's something you really do have to work on. And for many people, you know, you'll kind of keep iterating on it. And my purpose may be different than your purpose. But the point of having a purpose is that you know how to make decisions about your time and your energy and, and your personal resources, where you're going to commit it, because you know which things are, are supporting your purpose versus which things are maybe just taking you off track. And I think without some sense of purpose and some sense of thinking about what, what why am I here? What matters to me? What do I want to accomplish with my life? You'll just let life happen to you. And a lot of people do. We work in, in a constant reactive posture. Um, so, so reacting to life versus sort of trying to chart a course where maybe in small steps, you kind of can be working towards that purpose. They're two really different things. But one of the things I thought was really powerful from the people that we interviewed was they, they were aware of who they were uh, and they tried to make choices again in the interactions, not necessarily in giant things that, that made them feel more comfortable with who they are, or they were leading towards um, the goal of who they wanted to be. I think we talked about an example of feeling not like 
who you want to be is, which people probably can relate to, is someone who worked in a sales organization that you know, the, he or she was a good um, salesperson, but their boss got really aggressive every now and then and started doing, I think it was called dialing for dollars, where it, he wanted her, I think it was a, she wanted him to, to call existing clients and kind of push an extra service on, on those people. And that's just not who he wanted to be. He wanted to have a good relationship with the, with his clients. He wanted them to trust trust him. He he was uncomfortable with that environment. There was nothing ethically wrong with it. It was just an aggressive sales organization, but it was not a, a job that made him feel comfortable. Um, and so understanding that that was not who he wanted to be, he didn't quit his job right away. Few of us can choose to do that, but he actually found a mentor, a more senior person who was able to find ways to, how can you, how can you still achieve these goals, but do it in a way that feels like you're still authentically connecting with your clients until he got to the place where he could change jobs. But um, again, he wouldn't have even thought about trying to find a mentor who could try to help him navigate the goal that was required of him with who he wanted to be until he was very clear that that's who he wanted to be. So the the thing that I think was powerful from our the people who did this best was that they were able to find purpose, not necessarily in big lofty goals. I think that's what too many of us think is that our our purpose needs to be cure cancer. I'm going to raise a million dollars for charity. I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, hike to hike Kilimanjaro so that I can show, you know, show, draw attention to my charitable cause. Those are wonderful things, but most of us, that's an overwhelming sense of like, we, I can't do that. I have a busy life. I have, you know, family and kids and a job that the, the people who are better at this were found purpose in small moments in everyday interactions. So they didn't necessarily set the bar so high for themselves that they could never achieve it, but they still were able to direct their life in ways in the kind of everyday choices that they made. Um, one of my favorite examples was to someone who told us in passing about a moment of feeling like she had a little purpose in her day. In the pandemic, she was in line to get something at her local drugstore and there was an old man in front of her. And he had come up to the counter asking to book his um, vaccine. And he was you know, probably 80 or something like that. And the clerk at the counter wasn't super kind or patient and said, you have to book it online. We're not, you know, we're, you know we, we can't do it now. Get out of line and go home and book it on the online thing. And this person stepped out of line and sat down with him for a minute and said, you know what, I can help you do it right now on my phone. Let's book one appointment for you. Oh, look, here's one close by. You can do it tomorrow. Do you want me to, to come pick you up? Or no, no, I can, that's fine. I can get there tomorrow. And just taking that small moment to have a human connection with another person was something that was really powerful uh, for, for her to feel like she had some purpose in that day. And I think just setting the bar too high makes us feel like we failed, right? So then we're not the people we want to be because we didn't raise a million dollars for charity or we didn't you know, cure cancer. But seeing purpose in your everyday interactions with the range of people that you interact with is a really powerful antidote to micro stress and to sort of life in general, keeping you on track is, is, is taking it in small ways rather than doing something that's never going to be attainable for you. I thought we'd give our audience a little bit of homework to do and I, I often think about these people, we all have these people in our lives that are like radiators or drains. So they either radiate us with energy, or they drain our energy, we feel exhausted about after being in an interaction, even a phone conversation with those type of people. And sometimes we feel it's our duty in some way. But when, like we've discussed in the show, many, many micro stresses are adding up like compound interest, you don't have that luxury. 
And one of the things you talk about in the book, and this is really, really important, you say negative interactions always have a disproportionately large impact on our well-being. Eliminating even just two or three micro stresses in your life can make a significant difference. And one of the things you talk about are the 10 percenters and how the 10 percenters actively and consistently removed micro stresses from their lives in order to free up space that they could redirect into things in their life that are actually important. So maybe we'll share this as a final piece of homework for our audience. It's actually, I think, a very achievable, a very doable way to sort of get the micro stress back in control in your life in some way. We recognize that we can't make all your micro stress go away. We can't make all our micro stress go away. But we do know you, you mentioned a really important research finding that negative interactions have up to five times the impact on us as a positive one. So conventional advice for dealing with stress a lot of times is do things to make yourself stronger to deal with it. Yoga, mindfulness, uh, meditation, gratitude. Those are all good things. They're not bad things. But the, the sad thing about that is the goal of all of those things are to make you stronger so you can endure more of this stress slash micro stress. Um, and we suggest that it will have a far higher impact, higher leverage um, making a few small changes to remove some of the negative interactions rather than trying to add more positives to make you stronger. So it's really worth doing. We found in our research that even removing two or three micro stresses in, in your life that are systemic in your life can have a material impact. So we have a, an exercise in the book, which I think is pretty uh, useful to people. It's useful to me personally, where we identify the, the common sources of micro stress, you know, colleagues, boss, spouse, etc. stakeholders, and then the common forms of microstress. And we ask you to go through the chart and identify, you can identify all the ones that you have in your life. But but for then after that, circle just two or three that are systemic enough that you think you can possibly push back on and, and tackle in some way, change the interaction that we tell you it will make a really big difference in your life. And so it's not, you can't get rid of them all, but you might be able to get rid of misalignment with uh, colleagues by changing some practices or again having that kind of communication tool worked into your meetings you know did we agree on what happened here or um, one of the most common ones for all of the people we interviewed actually are draining or negative interactions with family and friends and it's not we can't get you know we love we love them we're not going to get rid of them but you can shift some of the interactions that tend to be draining um, my, my co-author Rob Cross is a really great example from his own life which is he's super close to his daughter she's college age and applying to medical school now and he has spent years um, taking her she was a competitive tennis player so he spent years being with her all the time and they just got into the habit of she texts him every little thing that's going on in her life and he's so close to her that he responds all the time and so she started texting him things you know like medical school applications something going wrong or I didn't get in here and he he would be worked up about it for hours because he got a text from his daughter is she okay how bad is this and she kind of was tossing it off oh I never expected she'd forgotten about it you know two minutes later and then he sort of realized they said they were having dinner one time uh, relatively recently and over a glass of wine he sort of said you know you're, you're killing me with this stuff this is not significant to you and it's really eating into me. And then they just realized that she was without thinking, causing that, in, in that micro stress for her father who loves her deeply. So they just came to a kind of new understanding. I'm here for me for you whenever you need me. But can you maybe like hold off on that stuff or, or save those things for when we're on a phone call and I can say, are you okay? And then minutes later, you're like, yeah, this is fine. I didn't I didn't expect that. So they've shifted their interactions so that the tech stuff 
which can distract you. You know it. You get a text in the middle of a meeting. You look down. It takes a certain amount of time before you're even able to focus back on on the meeting. But it can ripple effect for the rest of your day because now you're worried. Is my daughter okay? Is my spouse okay? Whatever. Um, Those things can have a really lasting impact. So changing that kind of interaction, still they're still close. They're still in a really great relationship. But he took away one of the biggest sources of microstress in his life. Um, and I think for most of us, we can relate to that. We do things without thinking. Um, and we're in the position to change the way that interaction happens in a way that's going to be better for us. One of the things that came to mind as I was reading about the purpose aspect was when I wrote my own book, the chapter on purpose, which is called The Wasp Trap, which just means wandering aimlessly, sans purpose, and sans just means without. And my my kids, and particularly my older son, was involved in that chapter because it was about the aspect of a wasp attacking us and the reason wasps attack is because at the late summer they lose purpose because the queen stops directing the hive so that was what that was about but the reason i share that is the other day i was driving home with him and he's showing particular interest in training etc and and focus and he said to me so this is a 13 year old he says to me you know one of the biggest causes for stress in young adults is a lack of purpose. <laughs> this is from a 13 man from, from the mouths of babes, Karen. So he says this, and I was so, so proud that he absolutely said that. But that was funny, because later that day, I met a friend of mine, and my friend was telling me about an older gentleman he knows, a very wealthy, very successful gentleman, who he rang up to check in on. And when he checked in on him, he goes, how's life? And he goes, oh, terrible. And he goes, oh, here we go. This is the drains and the radiators. He goes, why is it terrible? And he goes, oh, well, I'm, I get up in the morning. I spend as much time as possible over my breakfast. I walk to get the paper, take as long as I t- can possibly. Then I take as long as I possibly can to read the paper. And then I figure out to do what, the, what, what to do with the rest of my day. And I was like, kind of going, but that is your fault. You have to have purpose in life. Purpose is so important in any aspect of life. And yes, we go through all these kind of change in purpose as you go from maybe a parent or a, a, a partner to minding your parents, whatever it might be, your purpose changes. But this is such an important aspect of the book as well. I, I will add one thing to it because I think you're exactly right, right? Because we have a story in the book of a guy who was a super busy, super successful salesperson, and he ends up having a business trip, trip canceled at the last minute, and he ends, goes home or stays home. I think he stays home, doesn't end up, but his his wife and kids are off for the day doing their things. He pulls into his driveway. And then just realizes I have nothing to do. Like, I don't even know what to do with my free time because he's abandoned all of his hobbies. There's like a guitar up in the closet that's dusty. He hasn't played for ages. He doesn't have friends to call because he's been so focused on work and he doesn't want to go in to do work because it's a rare day off, but he literally doesn't know what he's going to do with his time. One of the really important things that we, our research shows and, and, and we learn from the people in our, in our studies as well is that because we get this, the unidimensional thing with every successive decade of our life, we get more and more focused on the things we want to accomplish. So, so our, in our twenties, we're trying to get our careers off the ground and after university and in the early days of our career, we may sort of a little bit spend a little bit less time with the friends and the activities that we care about outside of work. We're trying to get established, right? And my friends and family will understand. So they become less important in our everyday life. In our 30s, many of us are establishing families and we're getting someplace in our career. Again, really get narrower in terms of who we are. We're about that work, about that job, and maybe about that family. 
40s. By the time we get to our 50s, the kids may be off in the world. That purpose is sort of gone. And our work may be a little bit less satisfying to us because maybe we pursued some of the wrong things. Our sense of self, our sense of purpose was a little, has, has shifted and we didn't ever get it right. And then we realize there's nothing else in our life. And, and we know there's a lot of research that says that loneliness, which is a, which is really big in, in all decades of our life, but particularly in our 50s, for example, um, is associated with the same mortality rate as smoking 15 packs of cigarettes, 15, sorry, 15 cigarettes, 15 cigarettes a day. So loneliness and, and lack of relationships and lack of things that are outside of the, the narrow focus of your life, work and, and family for a long time, um, is a really the single biggest cause of lack of happiness later in your life. And so that guy you told the story of is a really good example of someone who has let his life become smaller in pursuit of whatever. No purpose, no context to friends and families and activities. He, you know, we, most of us think back to ourselves in our twenties and like, uh, you know, the, the best version of ourselves. I had all these activities and I was good at this and I had a big group of friends and life becomes smaller. And eventually it's going to make us less happy because we've gotten narrower and we've lost that kind of multicolor life that we used to have. One last question before I finish off with a, a quote that I mentioned I shared on LinkedIn, Karen, to many, many people absolutely loved it and it, re it resonated with so many people. But before I do that, I wanted to just ask you to close today's show with your final message. But before I do that, where can people find you? Because you give lots of keynotes, you talk about all the books that you've written, etc. Where's the best place for people to find you? Thank you. Um, easy to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then I have my own website, karendillon.net. You can find me either of those ways quite easily. Karen, I have a final quote. This is the one I mentioned I shared on LinkedIn, and it spoke to so many people and it spoke to me, but mainly it echoed a lot of your writings, particularly, as I said, How Will You Measure Your Life, the book you co-authored with Clayton Christensen, that was really the what and this book that you wrote with Rob Cross, which is the how, the micro-stress effect. So the quote goes as follows. We see how others measure success through social status and possessions. So we start using those metrics too. These social comparisons occur rapidly, often beneath our awareness. They create a sense of dissatisfaction with what we have in life and lead us to pursue material wealth in ways that challenge our values. We unwittingly absorb other people's definitions of success, and there can be a terrible price to pay for that. As you're reading this, as you're listening to this, we're sure that you can think of someone whose life you think has gone horribly wrong because they've focused on the wrong things. The interviewees in our research often spoke of the mistake of taking one step too far in which they pushed themselves to stretch to find a fancier house or took a job that often required much more time on the road at the expense of their family to keep up with what they thought were expectations of success. But that version of success never quite felt right. I felt that absolutely speaks to the spirit of this show and indeed the spirit of your work, Karen. Over to you to close today's show with your final message. I'll, I'll reinforce that that in, in our research and, and in, in my own experience and in working on how will you measure your life with Clay Christensen, we realize that that doesn't happen to people overnight. It happens in small steps, small choices. And so you're not aware that you're getting so off track on a day-to-day -day basis because you don't see it. You just, again, it's the wind eroding the mountain rather than the, than the dynamite explosion. 
Uh, so you can find yourself seven, eight, nine years down a path that you suddenly have a realization, and many of the people in our research did, that this is not the life I want. What I'll emphasize is that, first of all, it is fixable. It's never too late. You can course correct, and you can do it in, even in small ways and small changes. And the other thing I'll emphasize is that we know there's lots of research that says the single biggest determinant of long-term happiness is close and warm personal relationships. I think we underinvest in that in in the in the aim of investing or overinvesting in our career. Um, so making choices that will keep you connected with people outside of the everyday work stuff is going to play a very significant role in your long-term happiness more than necessarily one more promotion, one more prestigious organization is being sort of more full, your life being more full and having people you care about who care about you is going to play a much bigger role in your happiness in the long run. Author of The Micro-Stress Effect, Karen Dillon, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Aiden. I'm always glad to talk to you.